Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just uh, thank you that we could gather around uh, your word this morning to hear you teach. And uh, Lord, we just, that is our desire, to hear from God, Lord. And we ask that you would just make each of our hearts, Lord, soft soil right now. God, would you just, uh, by the power of your spirit, um, root out the hardness, Lord, soften our hearts to the seed of your word. We pray, Lord, that today that your spirit would speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would speak uh, just to our hearts and, and, and to those things that we need, Lord, that we would find strength and we would find encouragement. And we ask, Lord, that you would anoint the teaching of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We, we pray, God, that, uh, that we'd really meet with you right now this morning and prep our hearts for communion. I thank you, Lord, that we could just uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper this, this morning. And so, God, we ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, we're wrap, getting close to wrapping things up here with 2 Corinthians. And um, we've been going through this last section of this book where Paul has been on, I guess, the offense in defending his ministry as an apostle. Again, the legitimacy of his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Is, he's been dealing with those who have been questioning him. Uh, questioning his role in the Corinthian church, questioning the authenticity of his ministry. And so as we've seen, it's been a couple weeks because of Easter that we've been away from uh, 2 Corinthians. But what we've seen in these last few chapters is that Paul has been sharing, as he argues for the authenticity of his ministry, he's been doing so by talking about his weaknesses, not about his strength, but about how God worked through his heart and through his life in the midst of his weakness. And so now to further illustrate how God has been working through him and uh, in power, Paul's going to tell us about another example from his life. And it's one that he has actually kept a secret for 14 years. He's never shared this as far as we know prior to this, this example from his life. And it's a glorious one. He's going to talk about this revelation that he had from God, this vision. But the thing about it is this, is because Paul's desire has not been to boast in himself, but to try and, you know, point people to Jesus Christ, he's not going to focus on the surpassing greatness of this vision that he's had. He's going to tell us about it, but then what he really wants to share with those to whom he's writing is about the infirmity <laughs> That followed the thorn of the flesh that came with the revelation. See, it's not the, it's, you know, in fact, what Paul, I would say is this. In fact, it's not the revelation that shows the power of God that is present in his life and in his ministry. But what demonstrates the power of God at work in him is the perseverance that he kept going in spite of what he experienced. And so, you know, I called this. Message, the work of the thorn and God's point. It's a prickly story. A thorny issue. And hopefully we'll get the point this morning. That was bad. So, (laughs) verse 1, let's check it out. He says this, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in the Lord who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. 
God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter on behalf of this man. I will boast, but on behalf on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness though. I should boast though. If I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now, no doubt in Corinth, these so-called super apostles that we have been talking about as we've been at the end of this uh, section in 2 Corinthians claim to have spectacular supernatural experiences, visions, revelations, and they use those experiences to uh, promote themselves and, and uh, gain an audience. And now Paul, you know, reluctantly is going to lower himself to the same thing. And he's going to, because he believes it's a waste of time as we kind of hear him there, but he's going to share of his own glorious revelations from God. And it's funny. He starts to talk in the third person. He's talking about himself, but you know, we all do this once in a while. Oh yeah. Well, I got this friend of mine and uh, we tell this long story. I, I, I jokingly with one of my friends, we have this ongoing thing where when we pray together, we'll say, well, I, I have this friend and he has this need and maybe you sh- could pray for my friend. <laughs> really, I'm talking about myself and it's kind of fun we have. That's kind of Paul's tactic here. He's talking in the third person, but he's not trying to draw attention to himself. So uh, he does talk in the third person. Now we know that God, God does speak to people in visions and revelations. You know, People have been caught up and experienced uh, visions of heaven or whatever. And, uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. But the thing about visions and the thing about uh, revelations is it's almost kind of like what we were talking about last week where we said the gospel and the gospel account of Jesus' resurrection is not something subjective. It's objective. It can be weighed and tested and found to be true and factual. But visions and revelations, I would say, are subjective. See, they're, they're prone to be misunderstood. They're prone to be misapplied. And the real benefit of a vision or a revelation is for the one who's had the experience. Not for everybody else, necessarily. And so, you know, when it comes, you know, someone, someone comes to you and, and they say to you, I, I've had a vision, I've had a revelation, and... God has spoken to me and I think this is how it applies to your life. You might want to say to them, what did you eat for supper last night? <laughs> you know, cause I think maybe your food is talking to you or whatever it is. See, you know, if God wants to share a vision or a revelation and it pertains to you, he'll give it to you because there's something that's kind of subjective. And so Paul talks in the third person And he kind of describes this remarkable spiritual experience that he had. And he's not trying to glorify himself like the super apostles did back in Corinth. He's trying to walk carefully and he shares this experience to bring glory to God and not to himself. He says, in fact, what happened to me happened 14 years ago. And it's kind of crazy to think about it, but 
Paul just, he, he kept quiet about it. And now he's sharing reluctantly. And I imagine for him, it was a very real experience. Maybe you've had something like that in the past where the Lord spoke to you in a vision, in a revelation, um, in a dream. And it was very real. And maybe you didn't understand all of what happened. Paul says this, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't even know. Says it twice. God knows. I'm not sure. But whatever happened, I was caught up into the third heaven, he says. Now, it's important to know that Paul is not suggesting that there are different levels to heaven. All right? He's using terminology and language that's familiar to his day. In, the, in his day, they would talk about the first heaven and they would be speaking of our atmosphere, the atmosphere of earth. Then when they would reference the second heaven, they would be talking about the starry sky and the universe and the home of the sun and the moon and the, th- the third heaven, what was referred to the third he- as the third heaven was the dwelling place of God where God lives and where God reigns. And so Paul's saying this, I was caught up into heaven. That's how we would say it. Wow, that's awesome, eh? Caught up into heaven. Now remember from scripture that Isaiah tells us in chapter six that he too had a vision where he saw the throne of God. So did the apostle John as recorded in Revelation chapter four. Now Paul identifies this third heaven. He calls it paradise specifically, which reminds me of the words of Jesus that he spoke to the thief on the cross. I remember while Jesus was hanging on the cross, one, one criminal mocking him. And finally, after a time of mocking that second criminal began to say to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus, what did he say to that criminal? That criminal, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul says, I was caught up into paradise, into heaven. And the interesting thing is, as he talks about this, he does not describe what he saw with his eyes, but he actually describes this shot. Well, I guess it's a, it's, it's a shadowy description of the things that he heard. He heard things that could not be told and which are not lawful for a man to share. So whatever it was, and we would be simply left to speculate and lots of people speculate about what Paul heard when he went to heaven. Whatever it was, God does not want us to know what it was. And Paul was not given permission to share. It was something specific for his ears only. Now, I guess, you know, He could have written a book, could have planned a speaking tour, could have recorded a DVD and passed it out about his experience and and made a mint. But Paul didn't, interestingly enough. He kept quiet about it for 14 years. It was something that he kept to himself. And I imagine it was this, this thing in his life and in his background that was this source of confidence in ministry. A mountaintop experience where he could uh, look back on and gain reference and remind himself of the importance that he keep going for the sake of Christ and the message of the cross. Move forward in Jesus. And so Paul isn't trying to sell himself. He considers human boasting foolishness. We've, We've seen that about Paul. And so, you know, It's important for us to see that just against the claims of these so-called super apostles who were claiming to have revelations, that's the only reason Paul shares this. 
And this is where it starts to get interesting. He says in verse seven, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So impressive was Paul's experience. So life transforming that it would have been easy for Paul to become excessively prideful and proud of what he had received from the Lord. I would say narcissistic, self-centered, conceited is the word that he uses. And really all of us are in danger of that, aren't we? That we would become prideful, especially as we grow in the Lord and we grow in the knowledge of the word. And there is this danger of religion where we can become pharisaical and become prideful in our knowledge of the Lord, in our righteousness and lose sight of the cross in a sense. And as even as wonderful as Paul, the apostle was, Paul was not immune to the danger of pride. It's been said the best of God's people have in them the root of pride or a disposition to let themselves be exalted above measure, especially, you know, upon receipt of favor and grace from God. That's not common for other people. You know, I was thinking about thorns. I love picking blackberries. That's like a great benefit of living on the West coast. You know, I love those summer afternoons in August where we hang the bucket around our necks with the kids and we go off somewhere and we pick blackberries and we get to eat of the fruit. You know, my wife makes the jam and the jelly and the syrup and it's just awesome. I love doing that with our kids, but we all know what happens when you go out and you pick blackberries. It happens sooner or later. Every single time you get pricked, you know, you get stabbed by a thorn and, uh, you know, sometimes by the time you're done, you look like you've been fighting with a kitty cat or something. One time I was out when, when I was a teenager picking blackberries behind our house and I got stung by a bee right on my ear. My ear swelled up about ha- twice the size. The thing about blackberries is this. Blackberries are just a minor irritation. Really? Or have you ever sat on a thumbtack? We used to do that in high school. Did you ever do that? You know, a buddy gets up to go to the bathroom, comes back to class, and as he sits down, you slide the thumbtack onto his seat. Teachers always love that. Or have you ever stepped on a nail? I've done that a couple times. Uh, one time when I was about 13, we were visiting my uncle in the Okanagan, and I was walking around his house barefoot. And I stepped on a toothpick. Now, don't ask me how I did that, but I stepped on a toothpick. And hopping around, that toothpick went into my foot about half an inch. And I was screaming, and my uncle grabbed me, and finally he just took his hand and yanked it right out. Now, Paul, you know, we, and now we've all had similar experiences to that. But the thing is this, Paul is not talking about, when he talks about a thorn in the flesh, he's not talking about blackberries, He's not talking about rose thorns or toothpicks or nails or even thumbtacks. The root word that Paul uses to describe the thorn is a tent stake. 
Now, not the little tent stake that you might use. You know those cheap ones? You go and you buy your tent, and you try and pound those things on the ground, and what do they do? They bend, and they break, and they twist. We're not talking about cheap tent pegs. Paul is talking about an ancient tent peg that was used to hold up Bedouin tents. Like an 18-inch stake that you drive into the ground with a sledgehammer or with a big rock to secure the tent. What Paul was dealing with, his thorn, I would say, more closely resembled a sword in his side than the prick of a thorn bush. Now, we don't know what Paul suffered from. There's all sorts of theories floating out there. I have my theories. Maybe it was eye problems. You know, history says that he had this weeping eye issue. Uh, You'd certainly get this sense as you read the writings of Paul that he had severe health issues. Besides that, you know, he'd been stoned. Maybe he, maybe he suffered from migraines or severe headaches or uh, depression. He, uh, he had a full-time doctor pretty much hanging out with him, Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, part of his missionary team. Paul had some sort of health issues. Some have suggested he dealt with lust. Some have suggested that it was a demonic attack. Some have suggested that an irritating person followed him around while he did ministry. You know, others have said he suffered from malaria, which was common in those days. Now, whatever it was, you get this sense about Paul that everyone knew what his thorn was. It was something that could be seen in his life. It was no secret. His thorn was no secret. But until this point, the heavenly vision had been a secret. The thorn was no secret. Everyone could see that. But what had happened in private between him and the Lord, no one else. That could not be seen by the human eye. And I just imagine that some people looked at Paul and they thought less of him because they could see the issue in his life. What they didn't know was that what lay behind the thorn was a great revelation from God. A trip to paradise. An experience that he kept secret. And so he calls it a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan that was sent to harass me. You know, it's kind of weird, but in, in, in a strange way, the thorn was both given by God and was also a messenger of Satan. Kind of reminds you of the story of Job. You know, God permitted Satan to afflict Job. And God has, has Satan on a leash, so to speak. And although we don't understand evil and how it necessarily all works, we know that God wields control over Satan. And that God works together all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. You see, Satan cannot work against the believer without permission from God. And everything that the enemy did to Job and that he did to Paul was permitted by God. And so we read this text and I guess the question is, well, what's the point, God? What is the point of the thorn? What is its purpose? Because we're all packing thorns, aren't we? We're all packing those issues that stab us and nag us 
and poke us? What is the point of the thorn? You know, I've been encouraged lately as we've just gone through the Bible in 90 days, and it's, it was a number of weeks back. Actually, we were in the story of Job. And we were watching the teaching on Wednesday night, and the, the teacher reminded us, the Bible teacher reminded us, he, he just said some great things about Job, but then he said, there's two questions that human beings ask, and one will get you the wrong answer, and one will get you the right answer. The first question that we ask is this, when we're going through things. I'm thinking of the thorn this morning. And that is to ask the question, why? Why, God? Why is this going on? And see, you know, when you think about the story of, of Job, there's just facts and things that Job did not know or he did not understand or he had no knowledge of. Like what we're told about from Job chapter one, that a conversation was going on in heaven about his life and Satan was asking to sift him. And God said, okay. Job didn't know those facts. And to ask why would lead him to the place of disappointment because not all the facts are known. The question why causes us to look backwards and uh, when you ask why, you sometimes never find all the answers. But then, like Job, you could, you could ask the question, what for, God? What for? What is this thorn for? See, that's a question that looks forward. That's a question that looks forward in faith to see what God is going to do in the midst of what you're experiencing. Now, this text actually gives us three reasons for the point of the thorn. The first one is this. The thorn in the flesh kept Paul from becoming proud. Conceited. You know, Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 says this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Now, as we've been saying, as I've been saying already, none of us is immune to pride. Pride is, is dangerous to the spiritual health of the believer. And so to protect us, God sometimes sends Problems and pains. Blackberries take root. And they begin to spread and they can form a wall. Have you ever noticed that about blackberries? I was thinking about it. When, when I was growing up, we had this spot where we would go to in Gibson's. And it was on the edge of a gravel pit to pick blackberries. On the top edge. And the blackberries formed this barrier around the pit. Now I could pick blackberries and the thorns would keep me back from falling into the pit. Or, you know, if I was kind of sadistic and I wanted to suffer pain and, and hurt myself, I could push through the wall of thorns in self-destruction, inflict wounds on myself, and fall into the pit. The thorns function to protect us from the pit when we pick blackberries there. And that's how God tends to use thorns in our lives. They're there to protect us, to help show us where there's boundaries and where God is establishing walls of protection. You know, there's a story told of a, one, of a, a basketball coach who during a particularly successful season of college basketball was at home one morning. He was in the bathroom shaving. He had the shaving cream all lathered up and on his face and his wife knocked on the bathroom door while he was shaving and she said, honey, 
Someone from Sports Illustrated is on the phone. He said, Sports Illustrated? With the lather on his face, he ran out of the bathroom, ran downstairs, uh, grabbed the phone and said, Sports Illustrated? And uh, the cheerful voice on the other end of the line said, yes. And for 75 cents, you can subscribe each week (laughs) to our magazine. And his bubble was burst. See, look. God knows our weaknesses and God knows our vulnerabilities and thus by his grace, he protects us sometimes by the thorns of life. You know, it's interesting if you consider Paul, you know, oh, Paul, you've got this thorn and maybe he had, if he was to go to a counselor without a biblical perspective, they might've said, you know, about this great infirmity, Paul, you know, it's, it's troublesome. I don't know. You're, you're weak and I don't know how you're going to deal with it. Maybe you should, you know, develop a more positive mental outlook to meet this problem or maybe uh, to conquer this issue that you're dealing with. You need to look deep within yourself to find the, you know, the resources of the inner man, or maybe the counselor might say what you really need is a support group of caring individuals, or he might even challenge Paul and say, you know, Paul, if you really had faith, maybe you wouldn't be dealing with this issue and spiritualize it, be delivered from it. And some of the kind of advice is good in certain circumstances, but Paul does something way better. He takes his issue to the wonderful counselor. He takes his thorn to the wonderful counselor in the place of prayer. Look at verse eight. He says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And so look, first of all, the thorns serve to protect you. But secondly, the thorns of life, the thorns of the flesh push you to the place of prayer, push you to the wonderful counselor. You know, when you are dealing with any issue in life and it keeps coming back and coming back and coming back again, what should you do? Pray, 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 and pray. Pray till you are healed. Pray until you are delivered. Pray until you are set free. Pray until the Lord reveals to you the reason for the problem. And if maybe the problem will remain. You know, remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane while he had urged his disciples to pray and they slept? What did he do? The scripture tells us that he went and he prayed three times. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now the thorn of suffering, as we know, for Jesus was not removed. Neither was it removed for Paul. For Jesus, he was still going to go to the cross even though he had prayed. But in the place of prayer, as he wrestled with God, he came to a place of peace where he could say this, God, not my will, but your will be done. Now some might not agree with me, but I believe that that is the highest prayer a human being can ever pray as they have wrestled in the place of prayer to come to the place where I say, God, it's no longer my agenda. I submit to you. I trust you. 
not my will, but your will be done. See, when it comes to life, I have, I have a lot of plans for I, how I feel my life should go. But God knows what's best for me. And it's an arrogant thing to think that I know better than God in any given situation. Pray. 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 Pray for healing. Pray for deliverance. Pray to be set free. Pray that God will give you peace and either remove the thorn or to give you understanding and power to deal with it. You know, I was thinking about Lisa's dad as I was wrestling through this. He, he passed away of cancer in 1996. And we would pray for his healing. You know, I remember different times when we dragged him off to hear this speaker or that speaker and get hands laid on him. And I remember one night when there was a whole whack load of people over at their house and probably 25 of us gathered around his bed in his room and we laid hands on him and we prayed for his healing. You know, he saw all the doctors. He made all the changes to his diet. And I will never forget the conversation that I had with him when we were talking about his healing. And he said to me, I had a dream and I had it twice. And the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. See, he was a man who wrestled in the place of prayer and came to peace with the thorn that the Lord had put in his life. He went home to be with Jesus. He prayed and God gave him clarity. See, when we don't pray, when we don't talk with God, like just like any relationship, like a marriage or a friendship or a parenting relationship, when we don't talk, there begins to be a sense of strain and a sense of distance because relationships require communication, two-way communication. And God has spoken to us by his word. And we're to respond to him in the place of prayer. And sometimes God sends the thorns to drive us to the place of communication. To drive us to the place of prayer. Three times Paul prayed. Now nothing magical about that number. It just means this. He didn't stop after he asked once. He kept going until the Lord let him know where things were at. And Paul got his answer. Look at verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I guess the third reason I would say that God sends thorns into our lives is this, is that the thorn of the flesh precedes the power of God. You know, only after prayer did Paul come to the place where he said, I will boast in my weakness so that God's power may rest on my life. You know, at some point over the years, every single one of my kids has come to me and said, hey, dad, can I split firewood? 
And, uh, you know, typically it's out there when you're working as a dad. And so I hand them the axe. I've showed each of them how to stand with the axe and how to properly hold it in their hands. And uh, set the wood in place and get it ready and say, aim here to split. And with each one of my kids, the same thing has happened. See, they, they get that little six-inch swing and <laughs> nothing happens. And they give it a few whacks and a few tries. And then as I stand behind them, I eventually reach my arms around them, grip that axe handle along with their little hands, help them extend the swing so that there's proper power, deliver a strike with skill and with power and with one swipe. Wow, my child splits the wood. See, I add my strength to their weakness and the wood is split. And guess what happens? With each one of my kids as we've done that, you know what happens? Mommy, mommy, I split firewood. They take the credit. But you know what? That's what God desires for each one of us to do. To allow him to put his arms around us and in his strength, Bring whatever it is that we need for life. To bring his power where we are weak. But like my kids, you know, with their firewood, I and we never seem to want to accept God's help until we realize we can't do it in our own strength. So you have to come to the end of your rope. And I would say this, you know, the strongest spiritual people are those who I think, feel the thorn of the flesh and come to peace with it. Come to peace with it. See, both our natural weaknesses and God's supernatural power are constantly at work in every single one of us, just like they were for Paul and just like they were for Jesus. And the greater we sense our weaknesses the more we can sense the power of God at work in our life as we embrace those things. See, success in the Christian life does not depend on natural abilities or natural human strengths or the working of the flesh. Success in the Christian life depends on God's power working in and through us. And you know what? Human weakness can be a profound blessing if it results in us depending more and more on the person of Jesus Christ and less on ourselves. See, you know, it's been said this, the Lord has more need of our weaknesses than he does of our strengths. See, strength, really human strength is often, it often sets itself up in rivalry to the things of God and to the person of Jesus Christ. Whereas our weaknesses can be his servant. In our weaknesses, we can draw on his resources and allow his glory to be shown through our lives. You know, when we come to our limit, when we come to our end, it's there that God now has the opportunity to work in and through us. But when we sense the security of our flesh, that's when Satan finds his opportunities to take advantage of us. And you know, God's way often is not to take his children out of trial. I wish it was. 
I wish that he took us out of trial more often, but often, more often than not, his way is not to take us out of trial, but to give us the strength to bear up in the midst of trial. Reminded of that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 that Jesus prayed for his disciples. He said this to his father who was in heaven. I ask not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, we'd love that rapture experience of Paul and maybe someday and maybe you have had a revelation. But the reality is this. God has given us strength to live for him today in this world. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. But not only is grace sufficient for Paul, it's sufficient for you. And I, I love that line. You can, you, my grace is, you can just go through that sentence. My grace is sufficient for you and put a, a different emphasis on every word or put the emphasis on every word. And, and it brings out different points. My grace is sufficient for you. See, grace speaks of God's love, his favor, his unmerited uh, blessing upon our lives. Grace speaks of God's love in action. It means that, that he truly loves us when he gives us his grace and that he is pleased by us, you know, or pleased with us. My grace is sufficient for you. Can, can you hear it from God? My love is enough for you. Isn't it true that God's grace is enough? It is. Whenever we rely on it, it's enough. Well, whose grace is it? He says, it's my grace. My grace is sufficient. It's Jesus' grace. It's his love. It's his favor. Will he fail at that? Will he fail in his love for us? Remember Jesus, he suffered thorns. They were pressed into his head with a crown. He cares. He knows. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. I like that word is. That means it's for right now. It's for today. It's for this morning. It's not someday that will be. It's right now in this moment. His grace is sufficient for you. It's not, well, you know, his grace was sufficient for me. It's not his grace will be sufficient for me. It's his grace is sufficient. His word stands. Spurgeon wrote this. He said, it's easy to believe in grace for the past and the future, but to rest in it for the immediate necessity, to rest in it for the immediate necessity is true faith. Believer, it is now that grace is sufficient in this moment. His grace is sufficient for you. Sufficient's kind of a funny word in there. My grace is sufficient for you. Alan Redpath said this. I like how he said it. He said, do you, do you see the humor in the situation? God's grace and me. His grace is sufficient for little me. How absurd to think that I that it could be any different as if a little fish could swim in the ocean and fear lest he might drink it dry. The grace of our crucified, risen, exalted, triumphant savior, the Lord of all glory is surely sufficient for me. 
Do you think it not rather modest that God would use the word sufficient? My grace is sufficient for you. You know, I'm so glad that the Lord didn't say, oh, my grace is sufficient for Paul. My grace is sufficient for that person or that person. Leaving me out or leaving you out. But God made his grace broad and he made it wide and it's for you. God's grace is sufficient for you. And you're not beyond his grace. Your thorn is not worse than Paul's. God's grace is sufficient for your thorn. And you can know the triumph of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes as we wrestle with thorns, we feel so alone, don't we? We feel alone, like no one can truly understand what we are going through and what we are experiencing. And you know, I want to encourage you, in those moments, remember Jesus. See, Jesus was not pierced by just one thorn. When they set that crown of thorns upon his head and they pressed it into his skull, it's this picture that he can relate to any thorn that we experience. Whatever the battle, whatever the struggle against sin, like me and like you, he was tempted and yet at all points was without sin. You know, we're all cursed with thorns. And I would encourage you as you think on this and, and, and wrestle through it, don't try to remove the thorn that God has given you. Embrace it. Watch it produce protection in your life, protecting you from spiritual pride. Watch it drive you to the place of prayer. Watch it produce power to live for Christ. Guess what? We all got weaknesses. We all got thorns. But God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. Amen? Amen. I invite Murray to Beth to come. We're going to uh, have a time of communion.